Alright, Eric. You walk into a tavern. It's full of people. Shady looking types. Mm-hmm. You're here looking for the shadiest of the shady. You know, you're looking for information. But they all look pretty shady. <laughs> Why don't you roll an investigation roll? See if you can all right, maybe all right. narrow it down. Here we go. Well, that's a pretty good roll. You notice a guy sitting by himself. Kind of hood pulled low, heavy set, bearded fella. He seems like, you know, he's, he's by himself. He's alone. He's probably the only guy by himself waiting in a corner booth with just one other chair there. He might be your guy. It's convenient. There's an empty chair. I think I will walk across and claim that chair. But I am going to have my dagger ready. I'm not going to, like, you know, cause any commotion. But I'm going to go over and see if I may sit down. Well, it's a busy place. Like I said, it's full of shady characters. There's loud conversation bustle. Hang on. You bump into a guy as you're crossing the room. Excuse me. He's, you know... Like Star Wars in the Cantina, he's not taking it very well. You know, he, he immediately, like, who do you think you are? You made me spill my drink. And you can see he starts reaching for his own dagger. What do you do? I grab mine. Initiative? Roll for initiative. All right. All right, he goes first. Uh, Sorry, Eric. Uh, he rolls. That's going to be a miss. He swipes wide. Maybe somebody hits his arm. You go ahead. And- I'm going right for him with that dagger. Here we go. Roll. Oh, critical hit. Mm, yeah. Take that. You you get him right up in the ribs. You must you must have punctured something vital. He goes he goes down and, and not a soul really notices. I, I mean, was gonna like say, now just, in the commotion, I'm just gonna try yeah. to kind of fade into the group. You find yourself over by that single chair. Nobody really knows what happened to the guy on the ground. They're looking around. Obviously you've must be just away. drunk, passed out. The man looks up at you. Are you looking for information, stranger? Quite possibly I am. Is this the place to find it? Emotions to the seat. I take it. And I understand you're looking for some dark and sordid tales of days gone by. Indeed I am. Why would I share that information with you? I could make it worth your while. And try to bribe America? Yes, absolutely. Let's put a number value on this. 200. 200 GP. That's, that's a good sum of money. He kind of puts a hand out. You know, you've seen it in the movies when somebody does like the, the subtle handoff. He kind of puts his hand out like, you know. I happen to have 200 GP in this small leather pouch. I'm going to nonchalantly slide it over to him. Palms it. So you want some stories of the olden days when things were dark and the things we did were frowned upon. Let me tell you, sir, about a dark time that we called the 80s. <laughs> And back when controversy surrounded our hobby of Dungeons and Dragons. No! From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I wanted to lead off with this. We're, we're going to have some conversation here. We're going to talk. We're going to talk about these controversies of Dungeons and Dragons, these conspiracies of Dungeons and Dragons. Some of the things we're going to talk about 
I mean, there's some dark stuff here, really. I mean, yeah. worse than what I thought when I eventually started looking into it. So I want to start off with, like we did with Aoki Gahara. If you knew you or anyone you know is having suicidal thoughts, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-273-8255. Absolutely. Um, there's always a better option. You know, there, there, there are people out there. Like uh, like in Aoki Gahara, you know, your your family will miss you. The people that care people about care you will and miss love you. you. So uh, we are going to talk a little bit about that. Now, for those of you that are unfamiliar with Dungeons and Dragons, and I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar, but it is what you call a role-playing game. It is a collaborative effort. Um, to describe it in the simplest terms, it's cooperative storytelling. You have someone who is the role of the DM. They sort of describe the world and the events, uh, the other people that aren't the players. And the players each represent a certain character. Uh, you may be a, a wily rogue, a, a powerful barbarian, a, a crafty wizard or sorcerer. But you Ranger have, of the forest and woods. You, you have your role that you fulfill and, and, and you and the party work together towards common end. And you react to the things the dungeon master describes. One of my dungeon masters actually described it, it is if you were writing a novel, all of you collaboratively yes. together, and it's unfolding just as much in front of the dungeon master, the DM, as it is the players. And and there are rules to the game, and and so uh, over the years, there's been was it six or seven different editions of Dungeons and Dragons, mm-hmm. and Dungeons and Dragons is sort of the flagship. A uh, role-playing game. Uh, fifth edition says right on the cover, the world's greatest role-playing game. <laughs> now, that's not to say there aren't other games of, of that sort. And there were some um, before it, actually. You know, you have Vampire the Masquerade and, and Traveler, um, Mutants and Mastermind. I mean, any any genre you can think of. Well, there's the there's, whole spinoff of the Marvel superheroes, yeah, RPGs. Yeah, there's superhero DC RPGs. DC had their and, version. and uh, Gothic horror RPGs and... and Robotech even has a, an RPG. Cy- I mean, cyberpunk, you know, Matrixy type yeah. things. So if you can imagine it, there's a game out there that's meant to emulate it in some way, shape, or form. But at its at its core, and and Eric can correct me if he wants to, but I think he'd agree. Dungeons and Dragons is a fantastic opportunity to get friends together to sit down and have fun. It is a game. Mm-hmm. And I will stress that to the utmost. It is a game. It is meant to be fun. Have there been arguments created in D and D sessions? Absolutely. <laughs> oh yes. Have the, has there been controversy surrounding the game? A hundred percent. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. But again, at it, it, the end of the day, it is a game, and it is what you make of it. Absolutely. So if you want to blame Dungeons and Dragons for murder, suicide, rape, theft, pornography, whatever, I mean, uh, the the it, same it, thing uh, could be said true though about, and I'm going to go out on a limb here the avid hunter or fisherman who spends all their money and their time away from their family, maybe to go. I mean, anything can be corrupted to affect a negative outcome. Everybody has a hobby. Everybody has something they do for fun. And, you know, Dungeons and Dragons being a game, it's like um, any other game. You know, you sit down and play Candyland, Monopoly, Ticket to Ride, what have you. Have there been arguments playing Uno, absolutely. Life. I guarantee you someone has probably stabbed somebody over a game of Monopoly. <laughs> I want to stab myself sometimes playing Monopoly. It's, it's you know, God, the game's just last. And, and like any game, it can be obsessive. Yes. I mean, absolutely. And, and unfortunately, I would say due to the nature of Dungeons & Dragons being a game that you play with your friends, 
and a large portion of it is played kind of, you know, the phrase is theater of the mind, but you have to imagine yourself in the role of these characters. I do feel that sometimes people with unstable personalities or, or underlying, you know, mental, emotional disorders, I mean, they, they can maybe take it a bit too yeah. far. It can be a tool or maybe a tool is not the best word, but it, it can be a vice to yeah. lead them down, a, you know, a path. And we're going to talk about some of those. There's been some tragic suicides and stuff yeah. associated uh, with the game. But I, I'd kind of like to set the pace. You know, Bill and I were not so far apart in age. <laughs> but um, growing up in the 1980s, we'll just start there. It was a, a different time. It was a time of Anton Lefay, the self-proclaimed priest of the Church of Satan, on the opposite spectrum, we had TV evangelist Pat Robertson, who I will say openly fumbled to speak about Dungeons and Dragons, but the whole satanic panic uh, that you, you'll hear us refer to, which included wild music by such groups as Judas Priests and a, a little imaginative game called Dungeons and Dragons. And according to Pat Robertson, the, the game itself was the practice of satanic worship and conjuring of demons, this is verbatim quotes, that led many astray and causing some to go insane, unable to separate real life from game to the point of committing suicide. Well, and, and it wasn't, like you said, it, you, you were talking about rock and roll music, uh, Dungeons and Dragons being a fantasy themed setting, you know, a world of sorcery and monsters and stuff like that. It wasn't just limited to Dungeons and Dragons and fantasy in general. I mean, they, they oh, yes. criticized a lot of that stuff. Tolkien dragon and was a demon. I mean, you yeah. know, and, and honestly, most versions of Dungeons and Dragons, demons and devils are creatures that are depicted as, as a monster to be te defeated. Exactly. So yeah. it's not like you're in league with them. them. Now, could you play that way? You a hundred percent could. Right. Again, it's a role playing game and, and it's limited only by your imagination. And a lot of video games have been, you know, derived, got their stems from Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, but you wouldn't have World of Warcraft or oh. Elden Ring or any of that stuff but if you didn't start with D&D &D and, and Lord of the Rings. But let's face it, any video platform, there are those exterior walls. You can't travel any further on the map. You can't yeah. go any higher. Where they, they will never 100% emulate what Dungeons and Dragons never, can do. Because it is limitless. I mean, we've done campaigns where we've played the same characters for three years or more. I mean, you could you just can't do that with a video game. You, yeah, you we, finally achieve that, the ceiling, if you will, we, and we that's it. We ran a campaign for a couple of years with the same character. Well, I won't say the same characters, but sort of a rotating cast of characters. And yeah, I mean, we, we did things that... I mean, when you're not going to see a video games and, and it was, and, and again, it's a collaborative storytelling effort. So there were things that the players came up with that I totally embraced as the DM to Absolutely. add to the story. You're not going to see that in a video game. I think any DM has to do that. It, it makes the players sitting around the table, your friends really feel a part of the story. And that's why I was saying, you know, we're writing this story together and it's just as much what the players often suggest. And as a DM, a, a good DM, I think. You're listening to your players and you want to react on that. You yeah. know, you want to make everybody feel a part of the game, a part of the story. Well, I've, I've compared it to like a TV show. You watch a television show. I mean, I mean, let's just pick something, you know, Walking Dead. You, wa you watch Walking Dead. I haven't watched it in years, but you have your main characters and there's an episode that, that'll focus on Rick. 
Mm-hmm. Or there's an episode that'll focus on Daryl. Or there's an episode that focuses on you Carol know, or whoever. Carol or Carl or whatever. And and when you're as a good DM, you have to manage that and make sure that everybody has their time in the spotlight. Exactly. And, and you want to give everybody an opportunity to, to have fun. And and sometimes again, there's conflict at the table. I've had a session be completely derailed when one of my players didn't feel like they were being listened to. And instead of becoming an active participant in the battles that they, you know, they, they stood back and observed and, and made it more difficult on their fellow players. And that created kind of some contrast or even players who, who don't attend on a regular basis when you need their particular skill set. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or, or players who are more interested in the, the events of the world as played out on their cell phone. Oh yes. So, the notorious cell phone Again, at the gaming table. There will be conflict, but you know, murder and 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 suicide and, and thievery. So, but, but again, going back to the whole 1980s thing, I mean, you got all of this going on, and then add to that Montauk cocktail. We add sprinkles of at the same time backmasking of records and satanic lyrics and music groups that invoked demons and drugs and dancing and death and it. It was not a good time to be a teenage nerd <laughs> just trying to find yourself in this crazy world. Now, now see, Eric, I I really didn't get into Dungeons and Dragons till right about like 89, 90s. So I escaped a lot of the 80s satanic panic. Not uh, to say that I didn't wasn't on the receiving about end. About 1985-ish, I really was, I was in it. I was in it, you know. But, you know, Bill and I, to whatever degree, at whatever time frame, we survived, obviously. We, I haven't killed anyone. I, I haven't either. I've wanted to. A couple times. <laughs> but we've played Dungeons and Dragons for many, many years. I still play actively almost every week. I've added to my children, and I started when they were about 12, 13 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, my my youngest plays Dungeons and Dragons. She enjoys it. My oldest has gone off to college and started games with his friends, and he's been playing since he was probably 12, 13 years old. For me, it's a game, and it, it's mm-hmm. a game that I very much enjoy to share with people. But when we did this, at that time frame, whether it had been in 1985 or 1989, it was before it was openly accepted. You know, as it is today, we got such hit, hit shows as Critical Role and, you know, Stranger Things with the boys playing the game. Yeah. Tons and tons of references and comics and books and movies, and I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Dungeons and Dragons is probably more accepted today than it ever has been in history. You can buy core books at, at Walmart now. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, at one point in time. Walmart even sells dice. Dungeons and Dragons dice. Well, I was going to say, at one point in time, when you wanted to go buy Dungeons and Dragons stuff, and, and even for me in the 90s, it was these little shady, out-of-the-way places, these little shady, out-of-the-way places and mini malls that, like, I mean, honestly, they you, you'd walk in and it would it would just smell old, yeah, you know, musty, mildewy. And the guy behind the counter or the person behind the counter, whoever it may be, would kind of side eye you if you walked in, and 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 for me, I would travel, you know, fifty plus miles to Springfield, yeah. Missouri. That'd be the closest. Springfield. At, at one point, there was a small shop at Lake of the Ozarks. Springfield was the closest, and I would go to Rolla routinely. And the store I had to go to in Rolla, there was the first store I remember going to to buy Dungeons and Dragons stuff was just a general craft store. So they made like... Had a little nook. Yeah, there was a little nook with your D&D books, but then there was like, they made wedding dresses and wedding cakes and <laughs> and terrain for uh, train sets and things like right, that. I mean, right. it was... And then you had this little corner with D&D and, books and dice and stuff. And it was... I mean, obviously today we got the internet, but like if I would go off 
and I would want to buy a set of dice, I couldn't go saying, well, I want a set of translucent yellow tinted dice. Oh no. No, you bought you the sets where they were what, all different colors. And yeah. Whatever they had. I mean, you come out and you were happy yeah. to get it. You know, no, back I, in those days, yeah, you had the weird dice that you had to take a crayon yeah. and actually color in the, I think I had the numbers and wipe it away. I think I only had like two sets of dice for 10 years or something because yeah. you just, you know, you couldn't walk in and, and like, and again, now there are entire stores dedicated to this kind of stuff. There's a huge section in, uh, Barnes and Noble, oh, you know, huge. just dedicated yes. to role playing and you can buy dice and all that. Yep. You know, the, and, and again, the conventions even weren't quite getting started back then. So, you know, you've got these big Gen Con and, and stuff like that. I think we, we've talked quite a bit about, we've set the scene. Let's do the origin. 1974. Yeah. Gary Gygax and a gentleman by the name of Dave Arneson released a game called Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, it was incorporated by war games that they had played. But that was more of a tabletop army role-playing game. They wanted to allow the story to be more about the characters gonna, than the armies. Yeah, they, they, they started with tactical miniatures war games, but they wanted to know, like, the individual heroes. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, what was, you know, they, they, you might point to one figure in, in an army and say, well, what was this guy's story? How did he get here? You know, this would allow those players to gather around the table using their imagination, some dice, and to create a low-level character that could adapt and grow, becoming hero, heroes or villains, as the case may be. And all of this was around a story plot and the guidance of one leader who was you know, told the story that the DM or the dungeon master as they immerse the character around to live within that story as the guide. Well, now, like I said, we've, we've set the stage, you know, what Dungeons and Dragons is, you know, how we feel about, it. obviously we're passionate about this in the eighties. There were, where there were multiple things that happened, multiple events, multiple items. And, and one of my favorites, and that's the one I want to start with is Eric. Have you, have you heard of chick tracks? Oh Yes. Jack Chick was a religious cartoonist. He was mm-hmm. a fundamentalist. Very good artist, by the way. He's got his, he's got his own style. Yeah. Uh, he published these Chick tracks, which were each, uh, they were little tiny, I mean, I guess they were like two panel comics that kind of almost in a flip book type style. It reminded me of like a car owner's guide that would go in your dash. It was yeah, kind I mean, of that very, weird yeah. oblong kind of shape. Uh, but each one was meant to teach a, a religious or moral lesson. Uh, they're still available on the internet. As a matter of fact, I read the particular chick track we're going to talk about again. I've read it before. Yep. I find it quite humorous. And 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 I'm going to pick it apart a little bit as we talk about it. But this is one of those things. You know, part of that satanic panic. Jack Chick released the track Dark Dungeons. And Dark Dungeons was meant to tackle the terror of D&D. The terror. So to, to summarize a little bit, it's, it's the story of a girl named Debbie who's being introduced to Dungeons and & Dragons. And it does a good, good job of kind of showing you what a game of Dungeons and Dragons looks mm-hmm. like. There's a bunch of friends sitting around a table. Mm-hmm. One of them has their DM screen up. Which is a very interesting point. That tells me at least that individual, they were familiar with they're it. familiar with it. Because, I mean, let's face it, unless you've played Dungeons and Dragons, a DM screen may not mean anything to you. But. Yeah. Now, uh, during the course of this particular game, one of the characters is killed, which happens on a regular basis. Blackleaf, I believe, and, and was she her get, character. And, and the player is very, very upset about this. I, I believe they even storm out of the room. So the, the new girl, Debbie, she is told that now that her character is eight level, she can begin to learn the real magic, not the character. Debbie herself can learn the real magic. And I think the next panel is like a satanic pentagram on the ground, and <laughs> they're all standing in a circle around it. Now, at this point, it's, it's her DM that tells her she's ready to meet to, 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 to learn real magic. I'd like to point out, and Eric, you can disagree with me if you want. We said this before. 
the DM appears to be a, a fairly sexy middle-aged woman. Yeah, very uncommon. Um, for based that on my frame. experience for, with Dungeons & Dragons, most DMs are you know overweight, older, bearded men. Yep. So clearly this isn't a it, work of fiction. I will say, when I was in high school, uh, this would have been about 1987 era, I DM for the very first time for a young lady. I won't say her last name, but Krista. Shout out, Krista, if you're out there listening. <laughs> it was part of our, I was in vocational school at that time, uh, drafting and design. And we were allotted like a 30 or 45 minute break because it was a four hour long class. And that's what all of us did for the break. Well, not, I won't say all of us. There was the few yeah. jocks and stuff that kind of stood back and judged us. But the rest of us would play. That was the first female uh, person that I ever DM'd for. And it scared the bejesus out of me. I got to be honest. It's they women think totally different in a game. <laughs> I mean, they really do. But anyhow, oh. so they take the new girl Debbie and and they teach her. They teach her the real magic, right? And and one of the next panels, one of the next two panels, this is her and her DM talking, and the DM's like, "What did you do?" And she's like, "Well, I used mind control spells on my dad." Well, how'd that work out for you? Well, I've got two hundred dollars worth of new books and miniatures, you know. <laughs> Uh, so it's like, oh, she's she's mind controlling her father. Well, then and it starts. Then her mom or or, or some some character says, "Hey, you know, I, your your friend that you played that game with, we haven't heard from her in a little bit. You could go check on her." And she goes to check on her, and the mom's like, "Oh, I don't know. She's up in her room." And when she goes in, she she finds the young lady's hung herself because she 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 just can't deal with losing her character. She she leaves a note behind saying she she'd rather be dead than to face life without her character. What you, a crock of shit. I'm always sorry, make a I'll new one, you know? pardon my French, but jeez, um, yeah, yeah, just make another character. Actually, there's uh, plenty of ways in the game reality to bring a character back yes, from the dead. So. Yes. So now uh, the DM tries to convince her that the power she's learning are more important than human life. You know, she's upset. This is my friend. And the DM's like, no, you know, are, are you going to let a human life get in the way of the things I can teach you? Which as a DM, I don't have the ability to teach real magic. I've hold on. I, I thought that was in the dungeon master's guy. Oh, well you got a different one than I do. <laughs> I thought I had the right one. Uh, so eventually Debbie turns to family friends and they encourage her to go to church. And of course she turns her life around. Right. I would like to point out that at one point this does, this chick track does encourage book burning. And I have seen a lot of memes lately that say, if, if you're the side that's burning books, you're on the wrong side. Right. Right. So, uh, the, th the things that you can learn from a, I mean, any book has value, whether you learn a different way to use maybe a word or whatever. You may not agree with it, but at least maybe you can respect that person's opinion. And and this was sort of the viewpoint. Like, people, religious folks, really kind of believed this stuff. Uh, now, Dark Dungeons did inspire sort of a tongue-in-cheek movie made in 2014. I believe I've seen it. Uh, I believe I watched the Riff Tracks or Mystery Science Theater version of it because, frankly, it's the kind of movie that's just not worth watching Yeah, if, if it, you're not kind of making fun of it. And I almost feel like they were making fun of it. I don't know why they would have even given him the rights. No, so. I, I think it was totally a, a, a meme muse you know, to, made, to be yeah. made fun of. And, and again, like I said, the, these are out there. You can read this full uh, chick track on his the actual website. And again, this is only one example. I mean, yeah. he, they put out, and, and a lot of the churches pass these out, uh, youth groups and stuff. But, I mean, there was things oh, like anti-Halloween, you know, gays. Oh, yeah. No, uh, they, alcohol, drugs. They had a lot of them. Rock that, music. That, uh, you know, things that, that we, we were okay with now. Yeah. yeah. They were anti. Again, it was a... Just totally different time. Now, 
I don't know if you want to get into this one, but uh, one of my favorite movies about this same time frame. Are you going to say Mazes and Monsters? Arona Jaffe's Mazes and Monsters. Oh, I made myself watch this movie again. <laughs> now, you say that. I, I love that you're like, I made myself watch. I've seen it twice. <sighs> I saw it once on like Cinemax late at night. Yeah. And then I watched it with my kids so they could see. My kids have always lived in a world where Dungeons and Dragons relatively accepted as a hobby. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to show them like, no, this wasn't always the case. People used to feel this way about Dungeons and Dragons. The, I think I've saw the movie twice at least, but maybe three times. But, but yes, listeners, just for you, I made myself sit down and watch the entire movie again because I, I wanted, we, we've strayed so far away from the eighties. I mean, like I said, critical role and all this stuff. And it's like, like Bill was saying, you can buy the dice and books in Walmart and, and everywhere. I wanted to immerse myself back to that time frame to help <laughs> me remember the crap I went through, the ridicule, the the poking, the jabbing, the being made fun of. Well, you and, know, and that, even it, this that was in that time frame. You know, to to go back to you know Spinal Tap. Even this movie kind of turns it up to eleven. Let's be honest. Oh yes, the, the stilted dialogue and and the just the ridiculous uh, of it. Now I will say this is one of Tom Hanks' very very right. early roles. And I will say, if you watch Tom Hanks in the eighties, this is some top Tom Hanks goofiness too. Yes, this is like some bosom buddies level. Kind yes. of, he's pretty campy in that. Yep. So the movie chronicles the story of Robbie and his friends, Robbie being Tom Hanks's character. Now, I've kind of summarized here and, and Eric, you can fill in some details because you've watched it more recently mm -hmm. than I have. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately. Now it's, it's the idea is, is that Robbie had previously played mazes and monsters, but he had quit for, for some reason. I believe after his brother went missing mysterious under mysterious circumstances, yeah, it doesn't really touch on how or why he just went missing. So Robbie gro grows up and he goes off to college. And promises his mom and dad as they're dropping him off you know the mom's like now robbie you tell me you're not going to be playing this mazes and monsters yeah yes mom i promise i, I I've, I've i've turned my back on that i'm not going to do that anymore i mean if if that was where the movie ended then you know <laughs> there would be a short movie of course robbie makes new friends and his new friends are into mazes and monsters yes and they they get robbie to play and ninth in, level yeah he is the character pardieu the holy man the holy man uh, now they, they do, he starts to get caught up in the game and he starts to lose himself in the fantasy of it. I mean, he, it, at first he does a good job of separating himself from the character. Now again, I might add, there was a female player here again in the eighties in this movie. Uh, well, you know, Tom I, I've kind of had a little routinely had female players, attention but <laughs> fair with, yes. Yeah. He did get kind of mixed up with her a little bit. Uh, so at one point in time, they decide to play a live action version of the game, do a little LARPing. If you're unfamiliar with what LARPing is, live action role play. You've all done it. I'm going to tell you that right now. I'm going to, I'm going to speak into this microphone and say, if you're listening to me, you have LARPed at some point in your life. Even if all it was, was cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians, mm -hmm. you LARPed. Army man or it's whatever. It's just pretending and, 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 you know, not sitting around the table, but actually walking around and taking the action. So they decide to go to a local cave. And, and to kind of heighten the environment of, of the game, to kind of heighten the experience and, and to make it feel real. Because let's be honest, if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons and you're not exploring caves, then yeah. you're almost doing it wrong. <laughs> Peakway Cave, I believe, was the name of the one in the movie. Well, Robbie has sort of a psychotic episode while in there and at one point in time believes he's actually being attacked by a monster and sort of overreacts. And of course, his friends kind of panic and they decide they need to leave. And at this point, 
uh, Robbie completely blurs the line. He begins to live life as his character, the the cleric Pardue, to the point of you know, in order to remain chaste, he he no longer can hang out with the, his girlfriend that he was playing with. And, and again, I just watched this movie a couple weeks ago, but the he has these night sweat nightmares, and it almost implies that his you know, being a, a holy man, his the, the god that he prays to is his missing brother. Yeah, it, it kind of implies that. I remember his brother being involved, and, and there's some weird stuff going oh, on. Oh, yeah, it's psychedelic. It's weird. Um, so he, he starts to alienate his friends. He, he further detaches from reality, and eventually he, he disappears in search of the two towers, which is clearly a, a reference to J.R.R. You know, Tolkien. Tolkien. And so his friends contact the police and, and tell the police that he's gone missing. Uh, they kind of leave out the part where they played mazes and monsters in the cave. <laughs> yeah, they the, kind of totally deny they that. Don't want, they don't want that to be part of it. Well, Robbie disappears to New York. And, and in, while in New York, while walking the streets of New York, he attacks a man with a knife, thinking this man is a monster. I believe he's a homeless man, maybe. But he attacks this guy. He's got a bloody knife in his hand. And then he kind of comes back to reality for a moment and realizes what he's done. He kind of panics. And that even seems to make it worse after mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to jump in here. When he, when he goes to New York, at first it's not, you don't know it's New York. It, it could be Chicago or some big city. But he wander, it shows him wandering the city, you know, mumbling to himself. He does also wander down deep into the tunnels of a subway. There he hears the train overhead and he believes in his mind that's the mighty dragon that's roaring as the train's going over the track or the subway. Um, he finds another homeless man down here who he almost believes is a seer of sorts. Uh, and he approaches him in the tunnels and he asks for directions to the, the two towers, as you'd mentioned, the reference to Tolkien's book. And the homeless man, you can tell, is either drunk, mental illness, there's something going on there. So he just kind of like falls right into this character <laughs> role. We call it an NPC, a yeah. non-playing <laughs> character. And, you know, so Robbie's asking him, I'm, I'm seeking the two towers, you know. And he goes, well, you must mean the twin towers. Yeah. And then at that point, you're like, oh, he's in New York. And, yeah. And, and for our younger listeners, there used to be two yes. great big towers, yes. twin towers in New York City. And then, yes, he, he goes to the- yeah, He goes to the top of the, the World Trade Center uh, where he intends to jump off. He believes that by jumping off and casting a spell, he can join the great hall that he's been seeing in his dreams. <clears throat> Um, and I, I want to say maybe Hall was a reference to his brother's name. Or if, could have been. If could I, have been. I, I, there was a I lot of little references to the brother. But uh, his friends find him, and, and using the logic of the game's rules, they eventually talk him into not jumping. But there is a key right there that the, I can't remember his name, the one who's actually the, uh, the maze keeper, that's the, he, he tells Robbie as he's standing there getting ready to jump, and, and he says, Robbie, it's just a game. And the look on Tom Hanks's face is absolutely priceless. He begins to almost cry. And, and one guy I watched, and he hit it nail on the head, he's like, he almost realizes how bad the script of the movie is, and you can really <laughs> see he's crying over how bad the script is. But, Robbie, it's just a game. And he turns, and he's like, a, a game? It, it's, it is just a game. You know, it, it, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, it kind of fades out from there, and then, and then kind of the final scene of the movie is, his friends go to visit him at his parents' house, which his parents were apparently filthy, stinking rich. Oh, this gosh, place yeah. looks like a beautiful, like beautiful lake estate. House yeah, it's got like something. a it got a lake on the property and horses and all this stuff. 
So they see him and the mom's like, oh, he, you know, he points and he's sitting down by the lake and, and they go down and they're like, hey, Robbie, you know, hey, we're here to see you. Oh, well, the mom's you. like, oh, yeah, Robbie's in the back. He'll be happy to see yeah. you. Like, like nothing's wrong. And then as, as Robbie turns, he refers to them each by their character's name. Yes. Robbie is still detached from reality. And, and so they, they, you can see in the, in the character's eye, they, they're very saddened by this. They figure Robbie's okay, but obviously Robbie's not. Uh, he's still detached from reality. And he convinces them to go off on one one last adventure, and that's actually you know the the line ends I believe with the the young lady saying, and so we played the game again one, one last, last time. time. Yeah, uh, and of course you know we talked about the the disappearance of Robbie's brother, and then you know his family history, and and even in even within the context of the movie, it seems like Robbie has some mental issues already. Mm-hmm. And I've all you know I, I think we touched on that earlier. You know if you're if you already have some problems, then you know, maybe it, it can kind of lead to this. Now, I will say on a totally flip side, positive note, there's been some new scientific studies done for people with uh, such diseases as like autism by playing the game Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. It yeah, I does, saw references to that. It seems to, you know, significantly improve their thought and it, their interactions with people. So, I mean, you know, by golly, obviously, as you, as you already said, we're, we're pro Dungeons and Dragons here, but there's some new <laughs> stuff that's come out that that's a very positive yeah. limelight. That's that's very refreshing to get. Now, this movie was based off the book by the same name by author Rona Jaffe, uh, and that book itself was based on an inaccurate newspaper article about the disappearance of a James Dallas Egbert the Third. Oh yes, from Michigan State University in 1979. So early reports uh, in the newspapers overemphasized his participation in role playing games and speculated that D&D led to his disappearance. Uh, apparently, at some point, he had gone down into the steam tunnels underneath the university, and his friend said he was going to map them to use in his D&D game, and he never came back. Now, that was false. Egbert had documented personal issues, which included depression, parental pressure, drug addiction, and some people even speculate that possibly he was coming to terms with his own homosexuality. Mm-hmm. So he was a very conflicted young man. All of these are far more likely to have led to his disappearance than Dungeons and Dragons did. Well, and I will say he did go to the steam vents. Yes. However, they found him alive in well, the steam vents. He went the steam tunnels. He went down there and disappeared after taking a large quantity of drugs with the intent of him committing suicide. And yes, he was found. Uh, he woke up the next day and went in hiding to a friend's house um, to, to just kind of disappear and hence his disappearance. You know, uh, his parents did hire a private investigator to find him, but, but, Egbert changed houses multiple times, at least twice, before finally hopping on a bus and, tr- and going off to New Orleans. Um, he again attempted suicide when he got to New Orleans using cyanide, but failed. Moved to Morgan City, Louisiana, and then eventually, I don't know what prompted him to do this, but he contacted the private investigator to say, hey, this is where I'm at, if you want to come get me. So the investigator goes down to Louisiana, picks him up, brings him home. Uh, in the process, he asked the investigator not to tell his family the truth, so he doesn't want them to know what's going on, so they can only speculate, really. Uh, eventually, Egbert would die due to a self-inflicted gunshot wound on August 16th in 1980. Now, the private so, investigator, I believe his name is William Deere. I think it's yes, the same Deere. one. He was kind of uh, a card as well. This man, um, he was very quick to capitalize on the whole story. Oh, didn't he, didn't he write a book of his own? He wrote a book and published it called The Dungeon Master, The Disappearance of James Dallas Egbert III in 1984. The specifics of James Dallas Egbert's involvement in playing the game was hazy at best. 
anyone now researching this alleged story would find it was obviously his mental illness. Yeah. Not what he did in his leisure time uh, that was the true root cause of the young man's death. But there was another book that was written, Michelle Remembers, I believe was the name of it. And it was about a psychiatrist who shared one of his patient's stories, which again, uh, isn't that a conflict of interest? I don't think you're supposed to do that. I don't think you're supposed to do that. But this Michelle, um, allegedly, was reported (laughs) to be a part of a satanic cult with sacrifices and, and different things, even to the point of like killing infants as sacrifices. Now, I guess he realized his, um, fault by going forth with this. So he marries his patient, Michelle, and therefore, if it ever does go to court, your wife can't testify against you. Oh, so we got that going on. That's a little shady. Uh, but yeah, he comes out again, blaming the dungeons and dragons saying that, uh, she was witnessed by the satanic cult that the group, I'm assuming Gary Gygax and them approached the satanic cult to help them write the books for dungeons and dragons which included all the specific spells and incantations and and all the components you needed. Now, I will say, like two years later, this all came out. Michelle came forward and said, this is all just a bunch of malarkey. We blew it up and we tried to write a book (laughs) and get rich. But uh, this is the kind of crap that was like, let's stick it to the wall and see if it, or throw it to the wall and see if it sticks. Well, and and some people, they just took the smallest correlation between Dungeons and Dragons and, 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 and this tragedy. This is a good point to talk about Patricia pulling and bad. Mm-hmm. I don't know oh, you, yes. Uh, so Patricia was an anti-occult campaigner and founder of the group Bad, which I love this, yeah. Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons. Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons, yes. Uh, this is a one-person group, so I'm assuming it's limited solely to Patricia. <laughs> and, and she was dedicated to eliminating, eliminating Dungeons and Dragons in similar games. Now, she started Bad in 1982 after her son Irving committed suicide. So... And he, he had apparently played Dungeons and Dragons shortly before that. So it's the loosest of correlations. Very. He played Dungeons and Dragons, he committed suicide. I'm sure there are other issues, you know, that, that caused that. She, she automatically assumes that the two are related. Uh, she founded Bad in 1982, like I said, continued until her death in 1997. In the course of this, she filed a wrongful death suit against her son's high school principal because that was the place where her son had been exposed to Dungeons and Dragons. Oh my. She would later file suit against TSR, which was publisher of Dungeons and Dragons at the time. Uh, this case was dismissed in 1984. Most of her claims were disproven by reporters, but she believed that Dungeons and Dragons encouraged, among other things, Satanism, rape, suicide, and a laundry list of other immoral and illegal practices. Uh, this lady, she may have been a one-man band, so to speak, but she, uh, she was right there in the front. Well, I mean, this lady and took she, the charge. She got opportunities to voice her 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 opinion she was on a a 60 minutes special at one point in time uh aired in 1985 hosted by ed bradley featured interviews with patricia polling and gary gygax parents of players players all kinds of other people uh and in this special they linked dungeons and dragons to at least 28 murders and suicides there was one case uh, i remember reading about and i don't remember the name i'm sorry but uh she had hired a private investigator out of i guess her own money or the the funds that she'd gathered to investigate again, just frantically trying to tie any teenage suicide, however loosely to Dungeons and Dragons. Well, at this point, the private investigator went in and said, Dungeons and Dragons absolutely had no part of this. She'd like 
almost physically assaulted the private investigator yeah. and said, you can't change your mind on this. You said, or you agreed. I mean, come on. Isn't that the point of an investigation yeah. is to gather more information? I mean, she was just, she was volatile, very volatile. In that 60 minute special, Gary Gygax does have a, a good quote that I have here that I'd like to read. When, when he was asked about the role of Dungeons and Dragons and suicide and murder and Satanism and all that, uh, he said, and I'll quote, this is make-believe. No one is martyred. There is no violence there. To use an analogy with another game, who is bankrupted by a game of Monopoly? Nobody <laughs> is. The money isn't real. There is no link, except perhaps in the mind of those people who are looking desperately for any other cause than their own failures as a parent. Ouch. And it's, it's harsh words, Yep. but it's the same thing, and, and we'll touch on this later on, video game violence today. I've said for years, I've... I, I am a player of video game. I am a player of games of all sorts. I have played the most violent of games. I have played those straightforward, nothing but shoot 'em up, you know, Doom and, and Wolfenstein, Resident Evil, Grand Theft Auto, you know, all those. And I have never had the desire to kill a person. What I say when I say that is, you know, if you associate those behaviors in your kid with the video game, that behavior, that, that is your failure. Mm -hmm. I have heard about eight-year-old, you know, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, and the parents being mad because they emulated something they saw in Grand Theft Auto. If you're letting your 12-year-old play Grand Theft Auto, the failure is not the video game. Well, and related, maybe not so related, but like when Superman, the movie, first came out, there was, unfortunately, uh, at least one young man who jumped off the top of a building who believed he could fly. Yeah. You know, parents, I'm sorry, but you got to spend time with your children. They have to realize this isn't real. It's, you know, it's a game. It's a movie. It's... It's supposed to be for entertainment, you know, yeah. not to be taken to heart. You know, as I had said, it, it was totally a different time. You know, looking back in hindsight, you know, we got all these people coming forward and it would be easy today to, to just brush all this off. You know, it's just a few obsessed fanatics casting stones. It's something they knew for the most part, nothing about, but this was before the internet. You, you guys have to understand at that time, the only sources of information and in these so-called experts they might appear on local talk shows or religious televangelist or nosy neighbor lady well, that heard something. For, for example, in my own life, you know, my, my grandma, you know, lived on a fixed income for the last part of her life, obviously, after she retired, single woman. And my grandma would buy you anything. I've always, I always phrase this. Grandma would buy you anything as long as it was a book. Mm -hmm. My grandma, as long as you were reading and developing your mind, my grandma felt that you were doing something right. And so I you took advantage of this. I found a hobby that involved books. <laughs> And so my grandma would buy me Dungeons and Dragons books and I would, I would devour these. I would read them cover to cover. And I'm going to tell you, Dungeons and Dragons books do not make for the most interesting reads, but you read them, you know, right. you got to know the rules. You I know really enjoyed on. the Dragonlance series, you know. Well, I'm, you know, I'm talking the rule books and oh, stuff. Oh, rule books. The okay. Rule books. Okay. Not the novels. Gotcha. No, not the novels. That's the another whole host of thousands yes. of novels there. You know, of course, my grandma and the experts, you know, my aunt told her one time when she saw me reading one of those books, you know, my aunt pulled my grandma aside and was like, you know what those are, right? That's that Dungeons and Dragons. That's some evil stuff there. And yep. then my grandma didn't want to buy me D&D &D books anymore. Yep. Which was kind of okay because I had the ones I needed by that point. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it was, that was how these things happened. It was word of mouth. It yes. was, hey, we were at church the other day and the pastor said, and then, you know, one person said to another, and the next thing, you know, and, and I was... I would argue that I was a good kid. I don't mm -hmm. think I, I never got in trouble a lot. I was a little manipulative, you know, and I, 
Well, you know, I, I, you know, it's in my brother to ask for almost every child. I say I'd send my brother to ask for cookies when, you know, I, he was the cuter one. Right. <laughs> or, you know, like I said, you know, using my grandma to buy me D and D books because I knew she'd buy a book if she, if I wanted one, but, but that, yeah, that's all it took was just an ounce of fear or sprinkle yeah. that somebody heard something or somebody's friend of a friend of somebody I, knew this. Yeah. I never wanted to kill anybody or anything. So, and especially if you grew up in what we call the Bible Belt region, which Missouri is a part of, I think it, it definitely got dialed up a few more notches, you know, in, in this area in particular. But today, I mean, you got the internet out there and you see it just all the time. I mean, pick your poison. It could be, and I don't want to get too political here or whatever, but anti-Trump, anti-Obama, anti-female Ghostbusters. I mean, heck, you name it. it everybody is oh, against got an something. Oh, on everything. You know, and but someone out there has something new to be afraid of, and you just swear it's the, you know we're at the end of days. Now, one night, uh, one nighttime broadcast in the 1980s even went so far, and I watched this actual news footage, and I had to laugh. I'm sorry, it it was so absurd, but they shared satanic clues was the name of the broadcast to educate parents on what to look for in their children. Now, here's what they shared on that list because I'll say it again inquiring minds want to know one be on the lookout for coffins yeah it, you know if your kid has a coffin in their bedroom garage sleeps in it hey, that would probably hey, be a good clue of something I was going to say if your kid has a coffin in general <laughs> I don't think Dungeons and Dragons has anything to do with it it's, exactly. there's another problem there number two paraphernalia drugs pipes lighters bongs bowls the whole weed seed Watch for that. Three, kidnapping. Yep. Another good sign of something bad for sure. If yeah, your well, kid but, has been kidnapped by or kidnapped another child or involved in some way. But again, there's a bigger problem there. Exactly. And the fourth item, sexual abuse. Okay. Yep. Teenagers, frisky teenagers having sex. Maybe porn. Found dad's porn stash in the closet or whatever. It's been a thing for centuries, people. And I bet even some of the adults that was sharing this very informational <laughs> news broadcast probably knew a little bit about it. But this was the type of information that was being shared by experts putting this out there. I mean, coffins, paraphernalia, kidnapping, and sexual abuse. Watch your kids for these. This may be a sign that they're playing Dungeons and Dragons. Those are things you should be watching for anyway. <laughs> like, uh, and okay, again. You want to talk about like the tenuous connection that they would, these, these connecting lines they would draw that where there was really no connection. The murder of Leith Van Steen. I don't know if you found that one. I did not. No. Early in the morning of July 25th, 1988, Leith Van Steen and his wife, Bonnie, were attacked in their bedroom. Uh, the assailant was wielding a knife and a club. Leith was killed, but his wife survived. She had serious injuries, but she was able to, to get to a phone and contact, you know, help. Uh, but she did survive. Now, Bonnie had two children. These were Leith's stepchildren. She had them from a previous marriage. Uh, Chris and Angela. Angela was at home, but slept through the entire thing. Chris was a student at North Carolina State University. Now, when police became aware that Leith was worth $2 million. $2 million. Wow. Bonnie and her children became potential suspects. Because, let's be honest, you, you, who, who seeks That's to gain the most? reasons. And, and over time, police started to focus on Chris and eventually discovered that Chris and his friend Neil had driven a th another friend, James, to and from the murder scene that night. James had been the one to actually commit the murder. Mm. Now, Chris had told his friends that he would use the inheritance money 
to reward them if all they had to do was kill him and keep their mouth shut. <laughs> wow. Uh, Chris had had an antagonistic history with his stepfather. They had never gotten along, apparently. Investigators, reporters, and the media gave a lot of attention to the fact that Chris and his friends played D&D. That's it. That's it. That's right the there. only connect. They played D&D. They played D&D. And that was it. So they committed a murder. There was even a made-for-television movie about the murder that had D&D books with doctored art, with the art depicting scenes of, of murder as would eventually happen in, the, oh, wow. in real life. So they, they took actual, as far as I can tell, they took actual D&D books and then changed the art to make it look worse than it really was. And of course, this, you know, used this to imply that the boys were inspired to kill Leaf by the art in the D&D books. Another nighttime news broadcast that I'd stumbled across while doing research had yet another specialist that they were interviewing. <laughs> now, you know, he was right there on the stage, sat in a chair, very distinguished looking gentleman, uh, mid fifties probably. And uh, he states, and I quote, in one of the cases I've studied the parents and they witnessed their child actually summon a demon out of Dungeons and Dragons game. It was in his bedroom just moments before he took his own life. He goes on to enforce the books themselves are based on satanic rituals and written by witches and that this was proof of just how dangerous the game was. Now, I've read a lot of D&D books. In the spell description, when it says components, you get them three letters, VSM, mm -hmm. verbal semantic material. It doesn't tell you what those are. No. It just tells you that you need to be able to speak. You move your hands and have an item. And you would think if, you know, real witches and, yeah. and, and stuff did that, it would probably be a little bit more detailed. You know, <laughs> uh, kind of an aside, <laughs> there used to be a bookstore in the mini mall down at Lake of the Ozarks. And when I had first gotten out of high school, there was a book that I picked up that was, I picked it up for like four bucks or something, super cheap book. But I saw it, it, it drew my attention, I bought it. And it was written by Ryder Waite of the tarot card fame. Oh, okay, okay. And it was supposedly a chronicling of real magical practices throughout history. And I mean... Legit. If Dungeons and Dragons books tell you that a, a spell does this, this book would tell you how to do the spell. And whatever diagrams or whatever you needed, whatever items you needed, the words to speak... Oh, wow. ...to yeah. enact the spell. And I'd be lying. Did you try If it? I said I didn't try something. <laughs> there was a spell that was meant to... to you naughty boy, Bill. You just said you were a good kid. It was meant to summon a, an elemental air spirit to show you the location of riches. Oh. And I did the spell the way it said in the book. And it worked to a T. And that's why you're rich today and not working and living in lavish luxury. Yeah, I was going to say, and I live in a small house that needs thousands of dollars worth of work <laughs> and would love to leave my job but can't afford to quit because I would be homeless and I'd have to live in my car. So <laughs> There's I that. don't think the spell worked. And uh. if it did, it's taken the long route. <laughs> So, if I ever get confronted by an air elemental who wants to show me where the money's at, don't I'm forget on board. that. You open that gate. But yeah, like the the D and D books They're spells, very, they don't very tell vague. you this. Yeah, I mean it's super vague. Yeah. They tell you what it does. They don't tell you how to do it. Well, in the same news newscast uh, interview, this same specialist he tells of another example that he researched because that's what this dude apparently did is he just traveled around and researched and made money off of people. But he says, uh, this time a young boy had studied the Dungeons and Dragons rule book, and he had learned about astral projection, where it is believed you can leave your physical body tethered, if you will, to that body with a soul oh, and you return. Are, you, you are absolutely just touching on all the touchstones of my childhood. <laughs> my stepdad 
had in his personal book collection a book on astral projection, which I might still have. And so if I was going to learn how to do that, it wasn't through my D&D books. It wasn't through D&D. My stepdad. <laughs> well, th- this professional specialist, he goes on and he says, uh, now, to state the boy, he had surrounded himself with all the necessary components of the spell, which you were just alluding to, yeah. don't exist in the D&D books, but, but in his mind it did. So he had, this boy had surrounded himself with this and uh, t- uh, tethered this, this project, he said, to the soul, to another location, so he could cast out his soul, if you will, and then return. Now he goes on to state, you know, he'd laid himself flat on the bed and then took his life by shooting himself in the head. Now that part, you know, obviously very tragic, but he states the boy believed that this would start the spell so that he could truly experience astral projection and then return back to the body once it was done. But he closes in saying the boy never returned. Now, obviously, I don't want to make light of this, but this is a very tragic circumstance, but come on, do a little freaking investigation work here. The belief of astral projection is firmly built that the body must remain safe for the person's soul to come back to. And it predates Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, by far. And, and even in the context of the game, there's nothing that says you kill yourself to start this process. If you shoot yourself you have have a body to come in back the to. head, yeah, there, you've abolished any aspect of this. Now, okay, I can hear some of those, our listeners out there, they're shaking their heads. I can hear the marbles. You know, <laughs> y- you might be laughing. Keep in mind. Military experimented with astral projection, uh, like during World War II and, and some for decades. And honestly, they will say they had some degree of success with it too. So, so there's that. Now, now I hear the marble starting to slow down a little bit. I think you need to be careful with that. <laughs> <laughs> These are intelligent people listening to us, Eric. But again, if you lived as a teenager in the 80s or 90s, going back to the whole, you know, tunnels beneath the college and steam systems and sewer systems and caves. You know, again, it was very loose. A friend of a friend of a family member that personally knew a family whose college student was involved in a disappearance or a murder in or around a school or a college, you know, often taking place in a sewer system or cave. It was just like this cookie cutter scare tactic tale that would just kind of get tweaked just a little bit for whatever region or whatever area and dropped in as scare tactics. You know, the ending might be the teenager then killed themselves after their character died playing Dungeons and Dragons, or maybe they just wandered off and got lost and died of starvation. Regardless, the moral of the story, Dungeons and Dragons, you know, evil, bad, good. I think the more obvious lesson should be don't play in underground tunnels or caves. I mean, <laughs> come on, use some common sense here. Yeah, it, you, you know, if you put yourself at risk. Yeah. I mean, it, it is what it is. You don't go into abandoned buildings. You don't go into blindly running around caves pretending to be wizards and, and, and <laughs> fighters and then drop into a hole and die. Now, that being said, I will attest. Oh, Eric. My wife and two of our best friends, Robert and Liz, we, went, we, we were part of a spelunking group here in uh, southwest Missouri. And that, that's caving for those of you who might not recognize spelunking, but we, uh, we all played Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, I've told that story before on podcast. We were just married and, and very poor. And it's like, what do we do? We have no money. We got together on weekends. We played D&D. And we thought it would be really cool. Uh, while we went to this cave, we had permission to spend the night in the mouth of this cave. And there was a nice little pond. And we thought, well, we're going to do a little fishing. And we'll have some catfish and play some D&D that night out by a bonfire. And Well, I think we caught 
two slightly larger than minnows, uh, and we forgot the oil to cook it in. So we, we joked to this day that we had chunky fish chunks because it just all fell apart. And yeah, it was, it was a mess. But we attempted to play Dungeons and Dragons inside the cave. We, uh, Robert, I think, had brought a lantern. And then we had the little fire that was kind of going on in the mouth of this cave. And it was very cool. There was a little stream that you kind of heard the water kind of flowing out of and stuff. Extremely hard, low lit to, to read those little numbers on a dice. <laughs> so it was a short-lived mission. But we did attempt it. Uh, we, we didn't dress up or anything like that. But you know, we thought that would be fun. So I will say, you know, guilty as charged, we, we did attempt that. Well, just little bits of controversy, you know, even in my own history of playing Dungeons & Dragons. I, I, we used to go out in the woods. I'm not going to lie. We didn't do like the full on Dungeons and Dragons thing, but we would go out and pretend to be, we would go out and pretend to be, you know, wizards and fighters and things like that. But I do remember having a friend of mine come busting into another friend's house one weekend uh, and claim that he had been chased by ninjas across town. <laughs> um, say what? And I, I, I only say that because he was a very avid D and D player and D and D was, was very central to his identity. So when, I mean, you can only assume this was somehow related. Well, we did have Oriental Adventures that came yeah. out uh, probably about um, that same time frame. He also showed up in my house intoxicated. I won't say on what, because I couldn't tell you to this day, <laughs> trying to take my only set of Dungeons and Dragons dice that I had. We talked so, about how hard those are to find. Yeah, so that he could play D&D. Like, I'm not giving you my dice so you can use them. No, those are mine. <laughs> you go find your own. And, uh, you know, I, I had a, you know, I had recounted one time to this same friend that I had had a dream that I was leading an army of dwarves to invade a castle, and he immediately assumed that I had the ability to transmit myself in, in the dream realm as same as you can in, in certain Dungeons and Dragons spells, and was, was started talking about astral projection and all this. He was a unique character, I'll say that. Uh, and even We've in, all met him in high school, our tables through the years. In high school, I had a, you know, a D&D book one time and was writing some things out, and had a girl, I want to say her name was Christy or Misty or something like that. Definitely the kind of name that you'd associate with somebody who walks by, sees what I'm doing and goes, what is that? Well, it's a Dungeons and Dragons book. Oh, are you some kind of psycho murderer? I'm like, psycho I'm, murderer. I mean, don't get me wrong. I was the quiet type, but I never killed anybody. Uh, and even, I mean, we could even say jump as far ahead as, you know, the mid 2000s. Uh, I remember running into a guy through a friend, kind of a friend of a friend situation where he invited him over to play Marvel superhero role-playing mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. us. And this dude, I mean, if I had met someone who was going to be a serial killer, this was the guy. And his fascination with werewolves bordered on scary. I mean, oh, wow. like this dude, I mean, he wore like the three wolf moon shirt unironically <laughs> because it had wolves on it. And he was... Now, keep in mind, kids out there, this was before game shops were really readily available. So, yeah, you didn't get together in a public place to yeah, play d you wouldn't do that. You invited them to your house yeah. or you went to their and, house. And in this case, yes, my friend City. invited a relative stranger into his home. What could possibly go wrong? It was very uncomfortable for me. Uh, but again, you know, it's, I've played all manner of games. I've played them with all manner of people. I, I never had the desire to kill anyone. I've never had, you know, anything like that. I, I don't know anyone who has. So, no. you know, one, one, one other little detail from the 80s, if, if you were lucky enough, there was a Dungeons & Dragons cartoon. Oh, yes. I don't know, if with, with Dungeon Master and Uni and yes. the characters were the, literally the carnival ride named that, after uh, their class. teleported them into the realm yes. of Dungeons & Dragons. 
Well, many considered that cartoon to be entirely too violent to be on television. I remember reading that. I loved that cartoon, by the way. The I national, have the DVDs. Of I have the DVDs. <laughs> The National Coalition on Television Violence filed a petition with the Federal Trade Commission to include a warning at the start of each episode and wanted that warning to state that D&D had been linked to real-life murders and suicides. All the satanic panic. The, the FTC refused, and they tried to appeal to Congress, and, and to no avail, obviously. There were no warnings put in front of that cartoon, because that cartoon is so goofy oh it is it is um, corny as can be it's, it's one of those things where i tried to to show my kids like hey i really enjoyed this cartoon as a kid you guys will love this and back then, in the day this was the best we had kids yeah <laughs> we were happy to get it well i know you and i have talked um but in our years of dungeon mastering dming you know most of the time we would get together on friday or saturday nights we would play for six eight ten twelve hours or sometimes days it would literally start on a Friday night. We would play literally till we passed out on the floor of the couch and then get a couple hours of quick shut eye and we jump right back up to the table and play again. And, you know, we would just continue to play like all weekend. And I assure you, there were no sacrifices, bloodletting, you know, only the devouring of pizza, chips, and soda. <laughs> and quite honestly, some of the best memories of my life as a dungeon master for, I gotta say i'm gonna date myself here at least close to 30 years i found no greater compliment than to hear my players my friends talking about some past mission or adventure that was maybe years ago and i mean that just brought so much happiness to me that i knew i was a part of that you know you knew you had made memories with your friends that's what the game was supposed to be in my mind you know well, my, I don't think you disagree. My years, and I would say close to 30 at this point in time, I think I started at 13. My years of playing Dungeons and Dragons with, with all manner of friends, uh, you know, my friends in high school and then the people I would go to become friends with later on and, and, and my own kids, my own wife, my brother and my sister, uh, Vampire the Masquerade. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a whole different group that we played Vampire the Masquerade for probably a year or better continuously. And I think you didn't you tell me a story like where you saw on a bulletin board online or maybe in real life they were looking for someone to host I, I a game? And, yeah, yeah. I, I met people I wouldn't normally do. Yes, no, there was a it was an online message board back in the early, late 90s, early 2000s, you and know, the internet was still kind of in its infancy. But on the White Wolf website, you could post if you were looking for a game as either a storyteller or a player. And I was a storyteller. I've always, I've been the one that doesn't mind reading the books, so I'm always the guy that gets stuck running the game, right? Yep. So that's how I got to be DMs. Like everybody wanted to play. Nobody wanted to DM tag. You're it. That's, but yeah, I, I posted on this, this message board that I was looking for a game as a storyteller. Got an email from a guy who lived in, in Waynesville. I was in Lakeway at the time. So it was like 20 minutes away and turned out he actually knew my brother. Once we got to talk and he was the older brother of a kid that my brother had gone to school with. And we, we struck up a game and played for quite a while, you know, and we, you know, we hung and, and it got to the point where him and I, I, I thought we're, you know, pretty decent friends. We'd hang out, you know, just drop by each other's houses and see what was going on. And, uh, got to know his kids and his, his wife and brother. And, and we, we branched out and started playing D and D and magic and other things. And, you know, it was, ships were forged, you know, and, and yeah, you, I met people through role-playing games. I made friends through role-playing games and I am not a social person. So for me, honestly, when I feel like I'm in control, 
I open up a little bit. So as the DM, you're in control of the game. Mm-hmm. You can open up and you can be, you know, you, you're kind of. Everybody's you, role playing, yeah. including the dungeon master. So for me and, and my friends and, and family and all that, this was a game that was meant to be fun. You were meant to hang out, you know, amid all the controversy and stuff that we dealt with in the 80s, and early 90s. You know, by 20, was it 2016, there was a New York Times report that literally said the moral panic over D&D is done. D&D is not what people... About dang time. Of course, at that point, the moral panic had, of course, switched to violent video games and movies. Right. So... Shifted years. But again, like we said earlier, D&D is probably more widely accepted than ever, and and you have stores dedicated and, and have, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to you know, gather up a bunch of strangers in a dank dungeon basement somewhere. You can go to a store in a public setting and, you know, places that have Not be ridiculed, not be judged, and yeah. And most people now, even if they are not familiar with, you used to be looked down on by people who didn't understand the hobby. But I have found more and more people that find out that I'm into it, that don't understand it, will ask about it. They're intrigued. They want to know what it is, how it works. Yeah. So... I have explained D&D to people more than been ridiculed definitely in the last 10 years. I had one of my players not so long ago, at least in the last year, they asked me, and I'm going to ask you this question too, how many players do you think you have DM'd for from the early beginnings, humble beginnings to present day? I mean, I could probably literally sit here and count them, but there's been 50 or better at least, you know, because you... Again, there's, there's, you know, I, I get you use the phrase pickup game for basketball, but, you know, you're sitting around one weekend and somebody's like, hey, I got some friends coming over trying to figure out what you want to do. And the next thing you know, it's, hey, let's throw together a game. And, and you're DMing for people who've never played Dungeons never and Dragons played before. before. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, probably at least 50. And I was, I'm kind of putting some different situations where, like I said, I was like at school and stuff at vocational school, I was asked to do it. And, Later on, I was even, and I want to get into this story in closing, I was asked even by our youth group at one time to, to come and DM. Now, that, that's a total change from the, from the 80s, but <laughs> I, I wish, hindsight, I wish I would have had, I don't know, some object for people to sign that have played around my table. Because, and especially with us having the store, you know, Ravensloft now, I honestly, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you how many people, at least 100. Yeah. Uh, I mean, realistically. And, you know, some of them I may have DM'd for one time. I couldn't even tell you their name. And others, you know, we've had some long-term players, you know, like, like I'd mentioned Robert and Liz and, and Tim and Michelle. We DM'd, you know, uh, Al is another one. I mean, for years, well, a decade or it, more. You know, my long-running games, I could tell you every player that was in those games. Right. And honestly, to this day, almost could tell you their characters. But you go all the way back to high school days for me with my brother and, and Matt and his brother Keith and Jesse and his sister Shannon, Michael, the guy I told you was chased by ninjas. <laughs> you know, then you, you, you move up in time and, and there's Eric and his wife and a couple of his friends that I had never met before. And, and then you go to, to Tim and, and Tim and Jason and, mm-hmm. and, and, and all those guys in the D&D campaign. It starts you know, adding up the, real the, quick. The, the the werewolf guy that we played Marvel superheroes with. Yeah, I, I mean, like you said, there are people that I might have DM'd for one time that I couldn't even tell you anymore. And I remember you. we were talking earlier about our kids, you know, growing up with D&D. Both my kids did play at one time. Shannon and some of her various different boyfriends at times would join our table. I, I think she did it more to try <laughs> to be cool. I mean, that's just not really her thing. She's a big video gamer. 
But uh, Alex, our son, you know, who obviously helps, you know, record and, and helps us here. I remember he wanted so bad to play in the games that we had all night long at the house, but I felt he was too young, so I didn't want to expose him, you know, eight. Yeah. You know, at, at what point is a, is a good age? It's, it's you, tough. You got to pick. And again, some of the players that you have, how do I word this, might play a little bit more per, promiscuous. More, more mature. Yes, so you don't want to expose, it's not the game, it's the player you don't want to expose the kid to. I allowed my kids to play, and when we were short a couple players in my regular group, at first I would only let my oldest go, you know, he's like 15, 16, so if things are a little off color, he's a little older, and then eventually I I started bringing Sean when he was just a little bit older, but yeah, you're right, you know, sometimes, you know, some players are a little the game. It's the player, but yeah, Alex, when he started playing, uh, I remember... And it was kind of funny. I, you know, the kids would, would have their friends over to spend the night and sleepovers, birthday parties and, and different things. But I remember uh, Alex brought over a group of his friends from school. And I don't know if to this day if it was like planned or if it truly was just popped out, you know, but Nick and Chase and Zach and a bunch of his friends, they came over and they were spending the night. And the next thing you know, they're all like, so you, you. Alex tells me you play Dungeons and Dragons and you're, you're a DM and you know, I've never played, but I've always wanted to. Yep. That's what we did that night. I mean, we stayed up and you know, so I would, here I am DMing for corrupting yeah, America's corrupting youth. America's youth. Yeah, I could have said it better myself, <laughs> but you know, so there's, there's a lot of, a lot of times there, but I had mentioned at at least one of our podcasts, an incident where I DM'd for a group of elders and deacons for our church. And I wanted to get into a little bit more detail because what could be more fitting than, <laughs> than this episode? I was probably about the age of 17. I'm trying to get all the details. It's been a long time ago. It's a long time since I was 17. <laughs> but serving the role as a dungeon master to a small group of my own and some of the nearby Christian church elders and deacons. Among one of these was my uncle, who was an elder at a small church in Falcon, Missouri. And then a handful of deacons and elders from my home church, Washington Christian Church here in Lebanon. And some areas like Phillipsburg and some different areas all around here. This was a lot of the same time frame when this whole satanic panic, you know, in the 80s was all going on. And I, to this day, I honestly don't remember how it all transpired, but I believe it was after a Sunday evening church session. And we would often get together and, and have a, what we call fellowship meals or whatever down in the basement. And we just have snacks. And there was talk of, you know, the things that would corrupt our youth. And Dungeons and Dragons and backmasking, you know, and all this stuff, you know, came up. And I don't know if I was too stupid or too intelligent. <laughs> to this day, there's a very fine line. Young 17-year-old me, you know, spoke up carrying this torch literally for Dungeons and Dragons. And I was like, I play Dungeons and Dragons. And you got to consider, I mean, the small church I went to, we had about 100 people in the congregation. But my dad was a deacon in the church at this time. So there was a bold statement with that. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I could be dragging my father down with this statement, you know, as well. My mom was never really open to Dungeons and Dragons, uh, hated the artwork on the books, uh, that kind of stuff. Well, I mean, some of the early books, some were... of the early books is, is, you know, they're, they're out there, but anyhow, it led to a conversation, you know, so here young 17 year old me is addressing men that are now my age, you know, fifties, talking about this game and it was a very polite respectful conversation but somehow some way it led to well there's you know there's a lot of fear of this that's going on and and if you know about this maybe groups of our church could 
could get together and we could learn more about it. And I have to say, I applaud that. There was so much of this specialist that honestly didn't have a freaking clue what the heck they were talking (laughs) about, throwing stones. But at least you had this group, I felt, that was reaching out and trying to understand the game. So I volunteered, kind of through the the gauntlet was laid, and I said, well, the best way to learn about it is to play it. And then I realized what I had stepped into. (laughs) Uh, We ended up a couple Sundays after that. It was a Sunday afternoon after church. I found myself at our pool table in the basement of our home uh, with a group of elders and deacons of various different churches and a very short improv mission. Honestly, I got to say it was exhilarating. Uh, I have to give due justice, like I said, to these older men. They at least wanted to understand the game, and and uh, they wanted to then judge for themselves if it was truly as bad as you know everything was making it out to be. And unlike so many of that day, you know they just didn't want to make it up. The game honestly didn't last probably an hour. One gentleman, the oldest of the group, probably pushing seventy, uh, got up and left within fifteen or twenty minutes, uh, and said, "This is this is just a game." I mean, that was literally his word. This is just a game. And I, I think he said something to the reference of like Monopoly or you know, chess or whatever. And he just excused himself. I mean, he, he didn't get upset or nothing. He just, it's just a game. This is just, I have nothing more to see. So he walked away. I was like, well, okay, well, well there's, there goes one. And then there was my uncle. His name was Floyd Chatham. He really tried his best to get into the game uh, and worked with me. Uh, he was across from me smiling the entire time. And my uncle was a unique character. I, I loved him very much. He taught me a lot about business, and I ran his firework stand and helped run his pawn shop and stuff through the years. But a little about this man, he had one of those old West mustaches, bushy that, that he used mustache wax and curled up at the edges. Uh, I mean, seriously, he looked like Wyatt Earp or something. And I felt he was surprisingly open-minded. He was uh, a prisoner of war. Uh, he earned the Purple Heart during World War II. And later on, although he didn't like to talk about it, he told me of how he would escape these makeshift prison camps, uh, digging holes under the the fence, and he would go out and grab whatever food he he could, maybe a chicken or rats or whatever, and he would uh, bring back and, you know, feed his soldiers, his fellow soldiers. So a a very honorable man. And like I said, one of the older ones at the group, but he was really trying to get into the game. And then, of course, sitting directly across from me, probably the most petrified was my father. Uh, deacon of the church. And I'm sure in his mind, he's thinking, what, what is my son getting into? But we, we, we continued the game and everybody, we, we rolled up some very quick characters and I equipped them and we didn't go through all that detail, but, you know, got them into the game as quickly as I could. At the end of the mission, there was really nothing negative said by anyone that sat there at the table. If there was a worse thing, the only thing I can remember that was even possibly negative was a question about the devils and demons that appeared on some of the book covers and inside the books. And I, I replied, well, you know, the world is full of good and evil. Yeah, to your point earlier, uh, there, there are those that are evil, but in the game we try to defeat the evil. You know, we, yeah. we play against it. And I, I'm sure, again, looking back, young punk 17-year-old <laughs> kid sitting here with, you know, 50, 60, 70-year-old men, but it, they seem to accept that. And they're like, kind of nodded their heads and all in all, I, you know, I, I think I fought a good fight. Uh, I, everybody was very respectful and, and communication and it seemed to put many people, at least in our direct church neighborhood, more peace to the point that probably two years later was more and more involved actively in the youth group. Uh, we had some sleepovers at the youth group, lock-ins they would call them. 
And I was given permission to be a dungeon master at the lock-ins. And so here we had, you know, church kids gathered, guys, gals, and, and of course the youth minister and his wife and everybody was there. And I can't remember if they actually participated or not, but they'd kind of come by every now and then. But it was just fun. It was just a good time. And I don't know, you know, here, to, you know, fast forward to today, you know, my son started the shop Ravens loft and, you know, Sarah and I kind of re you know, inherited it, but, uh, things have really, really changed, you know, in a period of 20 years. It's interesting. Like I said, I made myself go back and watch that movie because you forget how quickly things have changed. You really do. Well, we hope we've answered some questions and maybe thrown some doubt and some confusion is uh, <laughs> torn away on uh, all the satanic panic and tabooness of the game called Dungeons and Dragons. Bill and I are testimonies here today. We're still alive and kicking, and to Bill's point, we haven't killed anybody yet. We haven't, haven't sacrificed anybody or anything demon. like that. I have played in a cave, but I haven't went down in sewer tunnels because I just don't feel that safe. But, uh, I mean, I've been in caves, but not related to D&D. So. <laughs> but we hope that you have enjoyed kind of a unique episode, but something, again, you'll find on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks so much for listening. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, London, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon. And also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing, and thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.